Welcome to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Anderson, and today on the show, we are joined by Rich Clark. Rich is a strength and conditioning coach and academic who specializes in all aspects of agility training for team sports. He has worked with professional and amateur athletes of all ages for the past 10 years and is currently a director of the United Kingdom Strength and Conditioning Association. He is also completing a PhD investigating speed control and deceleration during change of direction movements. I brought Rich onto the show today to go over change of direction and agility movements um, and strip away some of the excessive terminology we give various exercises and various modalities that we use in this realm. Rich has done a great job creating some awesome posts on his website, athleteagilitylab.com, where he breaks down some of the necessary global overarching components that would go into uh, proper selection of change of direction and agility work. Uh, And we discuss that in full here, in addition to talking about speed control and slowing down uh, certain reps so that we can understand some of the footwork that goes into this before speeding things back up. Those were two of the main points of focus. And then in addition, we also talked a, a ton about various sports and their demands uh, and the constraints surrounding uh, each sport uh, in competition. And then how to work our way back from there to pick some of the best drills for our athletes in a training setting. We also talked a bit about perception action coupling and how to best layer in those concepts. And then we also talked about the traditional progressions we see in change of direction and agility and how uh, maybe thinking of things in a little bit less of a structured way could actually result in a more creative, intriguing training ground for our athletes. Um, I really enjoy talking about this. I I do think that outside the weight room, there's a lot of ways we can structure uh, training for speed, change of direction, and agility, and it doesn't all have to be very linearly based in terms of the progressions we use, and Rich really did a nice job talking about that here on the pod today. So without further ado, here is Rich Clark. Hope you all enjoy. All right, Rich, thanks a lot for joining the show. I know it had been uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a chore there just for a second to get, to get you on. I know, um, you know, just a couple personal things that we talked about off the air and everything, uh, something to do with horses, but you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, there's always, uh, there's always challenges in the way of these things, trying to coordinate two people's schedules, but no, appreciate, appreciate the invite. Nice to, uh, I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we got it sorted out. Absolutely, man. Um, take me, take me into a little bit of your background. Um, I know, honestly, I just kind of saw you on Twitter and really liked some of the stuff you had to say about agility, change direction. Um, you know, looked at your website, loved some of the stuff you posted there, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of how you got in the field, what uh, drew you to the agility, change direction side and uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, cool. Um, I'll, I'll try and keep it short. Like as I talk, I, I remember of kind of different things that I've done. Um, I'm an SSC coach. I've been an SSC coach for just over 10 years. Um, I got into SNC from a, in terms of um, being specific in it uh, quite early. I did a degree in strength and conditioning, um, then did a master's degree in strength and conditioning compared to like being really general at the beginning and then slowly specializing. Um, various roles, um, spent a very short amount of time in professional rugby, um, 
com combined that with you know constant kind of study but always had an involvement with kind of supporting teaching supporting research um, and various different things of professional practice um, women's FA recently lots of kind of private individuals that will come in at different stages of either rehab or being kind of more performance related university athletes and kind of university squads so yeah a pretty pretty broad base at the moment I'm a senior lecturer and course leader in sport and exercise science slash strength and conditioning at Birmingham City University in the UK um, I combine that with trying to do a PhD trying to be uh, one of the directors of the United Kingdom Strength and Conditioning Association. Um, yeah, trying to understand change direction and agility and, and kind of optimize that both from a, a coaching perspective and from a coach education perspective. But yeah, finger, fingers and pies, mate. I like doing lots of different things. I don't like saying no. And yeah, I, I like keeping myself busy and uh, keeping options open. That's, uh, I, I mean, honestly, I think more people should be that way when it comes to this. Everybody kind of goes down their little rabbit hole and stays there. But the more you're spreading out and learning, I think it kind of all ties back in together anyway, right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's interesting as well where I speak to people somewhat similar to me when it's, um, you, when, I, when I and other people maybe don't necessarily fit perfectly into kind of boxes you know, to, to, let's say to be full-time in elite sport you've maybe got to be a certain type of person to just be an academic in a university you've got to be a certain type of person um and it's like well i'm not either of those i just kind of like a bit of everything so you just find the best way to to manage your time and find trying to find roles that you know cure all of those different desires in life i suppose so is your phd on change of direction and agility then yeah, absolutely. So my PhD is kind of focusing on speed control, which, you know, that might be something that comes up later. Um, generally, just saying that at the moment we measure performance by the time to get from A to B. And we understand that relatively well. But actually, we need to think about how do people decelerate? Do they leave that late and decelerate really hard? Do they moderate their entry speed? How does that affect their exit velocity? Is performance more actually about decelerating rather than just doing a, a total task as fast as possible? All of those kind of questions, just yeah, trying to kind of uh, en enhance our knowledge in one way or another. But there's yeah. lots of questions outstanding. So yeah, yeah, so that's really interesting. So I, um, you know, looking at your website last night, I love kind of the little graph you put together. You had in a couple of your slides just talking about how you know. I think the overall concept was we have way too many terms for way too many similar movements. Let's go back, almost reverse engineer to, uh, you, know, you know, cut through all the BS of all, all the names we call things. What are kind of these, you know, four different points of entry in terms of what we're doing in terms of, uh, you know, change of direction, agility, and then we'll kind of go from there. So can you kind of like maybe just take me into that? those like overarching themes before we like dive into some of the nitty gritty? Yeah, sure, sure. So a lot of this, that's a real kind of pinch point of mine. Um, that's a combination of when I was kind of younger and learning the real bare basics, you constantly come across stuff and it's like drop step, crossover step, hip turn, directional step, false step, you get all of this stuff. And as a, as a younger coach, you think, what the hell is all of this? Like, I don't even know where to start. And then I found the same thing then from being involved in education a lot is that you then constantly are getting questions with, is that a crossover step or is that a drop step? And you're like, oh, well, it's not really that simple. Like, it's not it, putting things into these really clear buckets. You can do that as a coach if it helps you understand what things are. But then because that's a word you've used for your own mental understanding, that's not necessarily transferable to somebody else to then picture the same thing. So I basically look at it as, 
everything that an athlete does from a competitive perspective, and most of these examples are kind of competitive or reactive, everything that they do sits along, sits in kind of this, this graph, which has got two axes. One is based upon how much, um, how much speed or what speed are they moving at as they are going to do it. They either start from static or they start from a maximal sprint, i.e. a cut is at the end of a maximal sprint. And then just like this initial acceleration to the left or to the right is from static. And then the other, can, the other axis is basically saying, does space, um, does the space that they have or the constraints that are placed on them from a space perspective, how does that determine the angle that they've got to change to? So basically, if you picture, you know, you think this is obviously got a nice little figure that's up on the website if people want to go and look. But basically what you have is you have the bottom left hand corner of a graph being linear sprint speed. You start static, you go straight in front of you because there's nothing in the way. You then the entry speed gets faster and faster and you move up the uh, restrictions in space very slightly. OK, you're running really fast. There's a small restriction of space. So you probably run a curve or you do some kind of small cut. And again, it's like, is it a sidestep cut or a crossover cut or a curve? They're all pretty close okay. to each Who other. Cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, a little bit, a little bit of that. And then you work, you go, you go higher up those space constraints. And again, you've got static, really low speed. And you've either got lots of constraints in front of you, which means that you might have to turn and accelerate 180 degrees to where you're facing or 90 degrees left or 90 degrees right. That's kind of a, you know, a movement type, as I would describe it. And then in your top right hand corner, you've got the most demanding. That's when somebody is at a really high speed that's sprinting and then loads of space demands come along and they've got to decelerate, cut you know, a massive cut left, a massive cut right. They can't just curve and maintain their speed. And the middle ground within that, which I need to expand on actually in a post is kind of that, the area which is maybe a little bit more common in, in a lot of invasion sports where moderate speed, moderate amounts of constraints placed upon what direction you can go in. And there's an interesting kind of match between those. But if you look at your sport, so if you're, you know, soccer, football or American football, American football is very, is very dominant in this top right-hand corner. You're at high speeds, there's a lot of traffic, you've got to make really large changes in direction, potentially with a lot of velocity. Whereas soccer, you're not really exposed to those same kind of demands. Actually, soccer's a little bit more bottom right-hand corner, meaning cuts and curves, big pitch, lots of space, not a huge amount of people in your way, so to speak, but then also has those challenges of being relatively static and then needing to make this real sudden, you know, initiation into an acceleration 90 or 180 degrees to where you're facing to make some, you know, make space, lose a defender. So you kind of have to look at your sport and think where on this kind of broader continuum of space and speed, where are people really challenged? And then I think for me, that really then helps. Okay, now don't worry too much about terminology because you know what the movements have to look like. Um, and then you kind of understand from a technical model perspective, just kind of some basic biomechanical principles, which help you think about what things should look like and combine that with some specific considerations within the sport. And voila, easy, right? You know, really, really simple. But you just, obviously it's, it's not that simple when you get down to lots of kind of, you know, some small gray areas. No, but, but that really gives you like 
a great overall picture of what's going on. And, and that I think that's the most important thing, which I didn't even think of until you mentioned at the end, once you see, if you understand that graph and the constraints and, you know, time space, what are we doing? If you watch the game basically, which is something I think that everybody's kind of on right now, if you watch the game, you can determine what you need to be doing in terms of preparing these guys and then go from there. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of what I've just outlined is all attacking biased. So it's all kind of, you know, cuts and curves and attacking and making ground. Defensively, it becomes a little bit different. It becomes a bit of a different conversation. But yeah, if you just look broadly of what are they, what are they um, challenged to do? Where does that fit on this continuum of it being high speed, low speed, you know, really um, large changes in direction, small changes of direction that really helps people focus their attention on what to expose people to, what the movements are that matter, um, and kind of yeah, it helps the clarity a little bit for for planning because it can be a bit overwhelming initially to see all of this stuff, hear all of this different terminology without, and then think actually what's important for my athletes, for my group, and yeah, where do I focus my time? So uh, you mentioned the defense offense thing. That's interesting. So obviously, I mean, when we're attacking, we're trying to create space. When we're def on defense, obviously, we're trying to eliminate space. Um, what else changes in your mind when you're talking about like what we're talking about right now? Yeah, the big thing is commitment, meaning from an attacking perspective, um, and, th and these are crude statements, right? Again, there's a, you know, who reacts? Is it pre-planned? There's, there's, a, there's a debate there. But from an attacking perspective, you recognize the best opportunity to make ground. This is an a team invasion sport. And you realize that you can make the most ground by moving into a certain location. Therefore, you need to change direction and accelerate into that location. So as soon as you change direction, you have probably committed yourself to get my ass over there as fast as I possibly can, because that's going to be your way of invading the opposition's space, you know, team, whatever. Um, and the difference just is a little bit with from a defensive perspective is that there's less commitment, meaning you're only actually going to turn and then maximally accelerate if the attacker has caught you out or if you're just in the wrong position in the first place. So that's kind of almost like a recovery strategy of gone shit. I, I'm like, I'm one, I'm one step back now. I now need to suddenly make up for what's just happened. Whereas actually like your better defenders are positionally much better with working, you know, moving laterally, making sure that they've got their pelvis relatively square, meaning as soon as you cross your feet, you put your left foot in front of your right foot, your pelvis faces to the right hand side. You have now, you know, quote unquote, committed yourself to the right hand side meaning if the attacker sees it they'll go into your left and you're yeah. you know you, you, you got yourself a bit of a problem yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so a, a defender's movements are much more about maintain the position to protect the space around you and if you have to move you move in a way that doesn't involve you committing every part of your body in order to try and get somewhere else because you have to be, remain adaptable to what is the attack are going to do the reason why i say there's a little bit of debate there is because again it's this situation as a defender you'll try and draw somebody one way you'll try and dictate what the attacker does you don't always react to it and again there's, there's always like we say with with models you know there's, there's flaws in all of these models so to speak but they provide you you know they provide utility and they're quite useful for coaches to just think okay that is that's kind of a a governing principle that you can kind of take and then move forwards. And then you start to learn 
oh, but there are these couple of situations when that maybe doesn't apply, but it doesn't apply for these specific reasons. So it's really starting with kind of key principles and then building on from, from that. Do you find good defenders do less then? Yeah, I wouldn't Yes, it's a short answer to that. I like to caveat that by it's not necessarily that they, they do less. They look, it looks like they do it less. It looks like they're doing less, yeah. yeah. There's, yeah. there's <laughs> less movement. So a good defender, it's the classic um, you know, tennis, and we talk about you see a tennis player that's really, really dominant and really efficient. They aren't the one that's running about and you know, go, going crazy from, from, um, from sideline to sideline. They are in control of the situation. They optimally position themselves and their footwork is really efficient, meaning they don't have to make this big crossing of feet and then a big step to recover and then a big um, you know, acceleration to try and recover position again. They are perceptually really aware of what's going on in front of them they put themselves in a put themselves in a location which gives them you know maximum utility or maximum adaptability and they make small adjustments based upon what's in front of them um, but then you just have that kind of balance between if you're a defender and the attacking player that maybe you're primarily um, you know marking or watching however you want to think about it if they are just way way faster than you then you're probably going to be catching up a little bit and reacting or, you know, picking up the right information. So yeah, they, they look like they do, they do less. Um, they certainly, you know, they are more economical with their movements. It's probably a really good way to, to think about it. Would you say that ties into kind of, again, another buzz thing like action perception coupling and stuff like that. Do you think that uh, some of those people that maybe appear to do less uh, even if they're not as athletically gifted per se, it's that mental side or or their ability to understand tactically what their opponents are doing that kind of puts them in that position. Yeah, hundred percent, absolutely. That like the the, percept, the perceptual side of it is so important. Um, how much as as an S and C coach you need to think about the perceptual side of it. Don't get me wrong, every SNC coach has to think about it, but how much you have to maybe prioritize that is, for me is gonna depend on what sport you, you work in. So if you're working in, um, in basketball, as an example, and I, I say this having no real experience in a decent level of <laughs> SNC coaching in basketball, so I'm making some assumptions. Um, if you're working in basketball, every single time that player does anything sport specific, with a with a technical coach with a basketball coach there is a a pretty high perceptive learning or perceptive demand therefore if they're getting all of that in their sport specific training you maybe worry less about it but i would argue that in in, in a lot of sports i use rugby as an example in the uk where actually you can probably look at certain players in certain situations and say i don't know if they really get exposed to that those perceptual challenges enough in practice, whereas in other sports they they might. So perception is massive. And those defenders that do less, it's because they are so, yeah, they're so good at positioning themselves. They're so good at recognizing patterns. They're so good at having a mental representation of what's going on in in front of them. Um, or, you know, that's certainly one of the arguments that, yeah, they look more economical and they are arguably a lot more effective despite the fact that they're physical testing parameters aren't necessarily going to show that so go back to the rugby example that's interesting so what about rugby practices limiting that is it just kind of the way that practice is structured or is it less important in the sport or or what no it's, it's not so much 
again, it depends on the, you know, it depends on the rugby coaches. So an example that I would maybe sometimes give for that and the easy ones from a, an, an agility perspective is um, you take about back three wingers, fullback, you, you, you're real high speed players. Um, my experiences are really, if you actually look at what those high, what those players get exposed to throughout a training week, there's a lot of situations sometimes where because as soon as that player, let's say, breaks a defensive line, passes the majority of the pack, and they then get into open space, they're running at high speeds and have these try-scoring opportunities. If a coach is out there with a load of other players, they're probably not always letting that player play through that play, meaning as soon as what you tend to get, and it depends on you know, how big the session is, how many players are involved, but what you sometimes get is these players who are involved in these really high speed, high change of direction situations, because their situations are one-on-one, one-on-two, as soon as those situations arise, you get, coach blows the whistle, right, let's come back, let's set up again, because, because they're always thinking about ah, the yes. team as a whole. Yeah, they're, worrying yeah. about, they're worrying about cohesion between all of the defenders, all of the attacking players, so there's certain individuals at certain points in time that in, in a big squad training session, it's not about you, it's about everybody. Therefore, maybe they don't always get that exposure to it. But, you know, different sessions, different coaches will prioritize different things. Um, and compare that to like, um, you know, the basketball example for one. Another one that I would use is so soccer, so football. Again, it depends. Everything they do is really sport specific. The, the players, you know, large scale games, small scale games, you know, five on five, 11 on 11, pitch sizes change, loads of perceptual challenges because they are everything that they do in their sessions is really, really um, perceptually demanding. And actually there are individuals that will probably get exposed to everything they need to be exposed to because it doesn't negatively impact the rest of the, the rest of the squad or the rest of the training session. So it's just about when you think about that perceptual side of things, you have to work with a coach. The coach is much better at that than what you are and whether you think you should concentrate or spend your time on it isn't necessarily about whether it's important or not it's about whether you think throughout training all of the individuals are getting all of the exposure they need to fill all of their all of their skill buckets essentially so that's uh that's funny that your your example with the rugby reminds me of like a running back in american football because i don't know if you've watched like nfl practices or anything like that but like the running back, once he clears the line of scrimmage, like the play is over pretty much. Like you're not supposed to tackle him, you know, like nothing is happening that would demand like the same thing that these, these high speed guys in rugby are doing. That's very interesting actually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you find, and you might be that some coaches might recognize that and go, these running backs, I, I need to expose them to some high speed, high traffic situations. Like, you know, sprint through a gauntlet, have three people to dodge over the space of, 10, 20 yards, however you want, however you want to think about it. Um, but then other coaches might just not clock that that's missing from that athlete's exposure. And that's both a perceptual exposure and that's a physical exposure in terms of body positions, biomechanics, and then being able to, to deal with those loads. So you think, well, this is what they're getting. This is what's missing. And then you can prioritize your time as a, as a strength coach to think about this is what I'm going to put into my sessions. And you might decide my time is best spent doing lots of pre-planned stuff and really physically exposing people to, you know, skill development and physiological development. And if that's the case, you know, cool, but you've, you've just got to make sure that you are 
eyes open and ears open to all of the different aspects and that you're not forgetting about something in your kind of in your considerations. Now, uh, let's take it over to the practical side with the with SNC coaches. I think it's great that we have an under, understanding or awareness of this. However, how much of that ground outside of like pre-planned change of direction do you think we really should like have a say in if we can influence a, a sport coach or the sport coach is already doing the necessary things from the, you know, uh, you know action perception coupling standpoint? Yeah, the, the easy answer is it depends. Um, <laughs> so if I, I would maybe give, you know, if, if you're in a situation where you've got, and let's take NFL as an example, right, where if you're in the NFL, and again, I'm making assumptions, I don't work in the NFL, you've probably got a group of athletes who are the top 0 point something percent of physical specimens. So you could argue that your time spent developing more physical capabilities or at least certain physical capabilities strength output power output maybe as examples maybe that's not the best way to spend your time if you want to transfer to a multi-directional change of direction based task maybe their limiting factor because they've ticked all of these some of these physical boxes there's definitely physical things that they would need um, need development with i'm sure if they've ticked all of, ticked all of those boxes then what else is it that influences that task? And if you think that there's perceptive development, perception development, uh, or perceptual expertise still to be developed, then you have to at least be able to understand that area and to be able to work with the coaches potentially to fill that gap if it needs filling. So ultimately everything comes down to what do you want to transfer to, um, i.e. particular situations or more broadly the, the general challenges that players are going to be faced with. And at this point in time, for the individual that you've got, what is the limiting factor? If they are a youth athlete or a soccer slash football athlete, the chances are it's physical attributes that are the limiting factor to them being really effective. So that kind of you know um, guides your priorities. Whereas in other sports, potentially... Um, American football as an example or at least maybe it's not sports it's individual players if they're really strong they've got great power output great kind of con unilateral control all of kind of the traditional athletic things that we would look for if they've ticked those boxes pretty well are there other things which they haven't ticked yet and if and one of those things might be their perceptual ability to be able to pick up information to know what to do with it to deal with uncertainty and then you start thinking actually the biggest way for me to make an impact on the game outcome is to deal with that even though it feels slightly outside your traditional remit um, but you need to make that call based upon your current kind of current context or current situation so uh, when we talk about this is something i struggle with a lot i, I think it's good again like I, I have a pretty solid understanding of this stuff um, but when we present it to the athlete uh, do you, and again, it's going to depend based on the situation, but do you prefer like having them organically kind of discover what's going on in the drill? How much background are you going to give them on the drill? It always works. Like, I feel like the best athletes can just figure it out and I, I'd prefer to say less if possible, but at the same time, you don't want to leave someone completely confused. Like, why are we doing what we're doing right now? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So I was just curious how you kind of balance that communication piece in something like this. Yeah. I, I guess there's kind of like two questions there where it's the athletes buy into why you're doing the type of sessions that you're doing. One of the things that you sometimes get, which I've certainly had is, you know, you take, you have, you have a rugby group and you do a, uh, a multi-directional kind of slightly more specific because there's a perceptual element 
session and that you know you might get the question of you're not a rugby coach though uh, and you're like well no i'm not a rugby coach but but you, you kind of have to obviously introduce and i guess that's you know thinking broadly about the coaching process introduce the point of what you're actually trying to do give them the rationale of like you know this is where i think we are all of you guys or girls do this at the moment really clearly but i now want or, or really effectively but i now want you to be able to take these physical things that i've seen you display and i want to make sure that you can apply them in something that's a little bit more chaotic and then i go oh yeah that makes sense and and i actually say that with a lot of things like that that when they ask those questions that's kind of a good thing because at least that means that they're somewhat they're, they're mentally engaged in what they're doing and why they're doing it and I would say as well is that where you have those questions and if you as an SNC coach or if you as a coach is slightly uncomfortable with it, then actually, if you've got a good relationship with your players, get them to feed into it. So if you're doing something which is, let's say you're a strength coach and you're doing something which is really, you want to do something that's a bit, a little bit more running back specific with what they're going to be exposed to, you might have a good idea of what you think they want. And if they question it, ask them how you, how they think it can become more specific. Like ask them, does that, does it feel does it feel like a, a game like situation and then they become part of the process and then they start to kind of buy into it the, the second question that i think was wrapped up in that is i guess it's the the traditional debate between instruction versus kind of the more constraints led allow people to discover the solutions to to what's been put in front of them and i think you can there's, there's debates to be had about that all day between a you know ecological dynamics, ecological psychology versus kind of more traditional mental, um, mental based processing. And the answer is always for me, at least is a bit of both. I think there's a lot to be said for having confidence as a coach and having and being comfortable as a coach to be able to say, here's a situation. And, you know, being kind of deliberate with how you construct what it is that you want them to do here's a situation have a go at it and, and kind of crack on and just see what you get and if you get something that you think is good or that's not as good you you take that information in your head and you think like right do I want to make it harder or do I want to make it easier do I want to see if they can um complete this task via a different solution then instead of telling them that just think how do I make the challenge different in order to really guide them into that direction can you tell them like i actually asked this question on, on twitter a few weeks ago you know can you tell them like have you thought about looking at, at this kind of information over here to kind of guide them into certain directions um and i don't know is the answer uh, the, the answer to that for me on twitter was they you know the people who i spoke to probably wouldn't because if they aren't doing something it's because they don't need to the task that you're giving them doesn't require them to do it in that way. So if you want them to do it in that way, change the task that you give them. And that makes a huge amount of sense. And I don't disagree with that by any stretch. Um, I still have that bit in my head that just thinks hmm, really time constrained environments when you maybe can't mess around with, you know, environmental changes or task specific changes a million times within a session, keep an athlete kind of bought into it. Maybe you can just kind of nudge them into to certain directions. But I, I think as coaches, we are very used to and very happy with instruction, tell someone how to do it. This is your answer. And I would encourage people to have the, have the ability to do that and have the skills to do that, but get more comfortable with Here's a situation, 
let's see how you deal with it. And then seeing what you, you know, seeing the solution and then thinking, okay, what I've just seen looks like crap. Therefore, what I need to do is I need to simplify this and I need to make it more kind of a challenge, more balanced with what their capability is. Or you've, okay, what I've seen is awesome, but you've just done it the same way five times. I now want you to do it a slightly different way just because I want you to be able to have that solution if it comes. So now I'll change this piece of information. I'll add another defender. I'll, I'll make the space bigger. I'll make the space smaller or, or whatever it might be. I think SNC coaches, strength coaches need more encouragement to be more comfortable doing that and not to have to always be talking and not to have to always have the answer, which is why I think it's important to almost like to push that side of it a little bit more because that goes against the natural grain of, you know, traditionally how people have kind of uh, worked their way up, which obviously comes from, comes from the weight room, right? You, you, yeah. Yeah, safety considerations, et cetera. You have much more of a do this, do not do that. Um, <laughs> and then you have to change your thinking and change the, change the way you approach things a little bit more when you get out onto the, onto the pitch, onto the field, in, in my opinion. I think it's a very interesting too. I've worked with a lot of different backgrounds of people and some are so receptive to uh, wanting that that experience where you're giving them the ability to kind of choose their adventure almost in the situation that you're giving them. But then again, you try that with other certain populations and they look at you like you're crazy. They're like, just tell me what to do so I can get this done and get out of here. <laughs> you know, yeah, and it's, yeah. that's the other big interesting piece to all this is like, what does the athlete want? Like, are they just punching in and punching out or are they down for like a more interesting immersive experience, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's context, you know, when you're making decisions, you know, you're doing your whole testing, needs analysis, thinking about session design, etc. But you're also thinking, where do I work? Who are my athletes? What do they want? How are they engaged in the process? And what are my strengths and my skill set? If you suck at this stuff, then don't do lots of it do bits and pieces of it and get and try and feel like you get better at it in, in safe environments when you know the athletes are going to buy in and then vice versa. If you're really good at this stuff and it does suit, then actually it makes sense that you probably include this kind of thing a little bit more constraints led coaching can be blended into strength training quite, quite easily. So yeah, you know, it's important to not, there isn't, oh, there isn't a one way of doing it. Just like there's not one way of an athlete doing it. There's not one perfect way from a coach to do it. Do what, suits your environment suits your players suits your team and that you are comfortable with and that you are effective at all right so let's transition a little bit into the nitty-gritty stuff so you mentioned speed control earlier and i've heard a lot of people talking about it over the last couple of weeks about slowing things down be it in linear sprinting or whatever we're picking let's say within the context of the graph that you have set up um what how how much important do you, importance do you put on tempo to kind of acquire the necessary movements we want in certain situations and then when you look into speed it up kind of what are your overall thoughts on that yeah look it, one of the reasons why i think coaches struggle with this as an area is because it's much more about skill acquisition than it is about physiological development and physiological development um i'm gonna make a crude statement to say is quite easy you provide progressive overload and you do things in a certain way to stimulate certain tissues. Happy days, like that, that in, the, in the crux of things, there's obviously more to it. But in the, in the, the basis of things, that's a nice linear process in a lot of situations. And then suddenly skill acquisition becomes a little bit more chaotic, it's more non-linear, it's harder to manage. How do I, you know, how do I progress this? Do I do more repetitions? But you end up with lots of 
big routine and end up with lots of questions. But obviously as part of that skill acquisition consideration is if somebody is moving slower, it is easier to coordinate a movement. That's the, the basis of it. They get more time to be able to um, control their postures, to control their limbs in order to be able to execute something. But the issue is, is that in order for skill development to be effective, the skill that you're learning has to be very specific. So if you slow a movement down too much, it becomes less specific, which means you might not be developing what you think you're developing. And what I mean by that is you can do something slowly and get someone to do really good things and then you speed it up and they're still rubbish at it. It, it doesn't always happen like that because there's a, a physical linkage with it and, and different things. But we just have to remember that the more you strip something away from its final form, the, the lower level your transfer may be. So yes, do I think slowing things down are important? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think that get people into good positions, get them to understand the shapes they need to make, get them to learn how to coordinate things in lower intensity environments. And then once they can do that, you naturally build that up. That's not just probably useful from a skill acquisition perspective, but there's also a physical load element there. Sprinting maximally and then doing a, a, a 50 degree cutting motion when you've never done it before is probably a silly idea to do in, in practice. Um, so you think, okay, how do I make sure that I control the amount of load that's placed on this person? Um, and I make sure that I keep them in good positions. And one of the ways of doing that is by lowering speed, but I guess it's, it becomes a little bit more complicated there where, especially within the change of direction. So that, that, that statement you could pull out and you could take into a strength training environment and say the same thing. There's certain things, if you do slower, you'll learn it better. Once you do it slowly, let's do it quicker. Um, the point when it becomes a little bit more complicated there with kind of the change of direction stuff is that there's, there's intent to move fast and then there is being in a situation which is a very high velocity, low time situation. And by that, I mean, you could teach somebody a, let's say the, the movement that you want to see in a 180 degree turn or the movement that you want to see in a 45 degree cut, whatever skill that you want to kind of think about, you can teach them that. And if you just challenge approach distance, you lower the speed that they move at because a shorter approach, they get up to short to lower speeds because you lower the speed, you make it a little bit easier, but the intent is still to try and do this really quickly. Whereas you don't necessarily get that same kind of manipulation, the, you know, the opportunity to manipulate it that way from a strength training environment. So yeah, slow things down, but if you're gonna slow things down and make things simpler, try and have the same kind of intent from the athlete. So almost slow down the demand that's placed on them rather than slow down their desire to do something at a certain velocity or a certain, um, a certain intensity. I love that. And they won't know that it's the great thing about it is if the intent is good like that, they won't really know the difference because you didn't say run 20 and then do a 180 degree turn. You said run five. And then as time goes on, if you extend it out, obviously, like you said, speed's going to kind of regulate itself just based on the distance. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 The other big part of slowing down is the deceleration component. Um, where, you know, that's kind of, you know, related to kind of the, some of my PhD questions. A lot of mine are, is deceleration component related? Meaning, you know, if doing a cut at a lower speed is easier than doing a cut 
at a higher speed. But if we take two people, we give them the same task with the same approach, you know, 10 meters, 20 meters approach, they are, when they actually do that cut, they're probably both moving at a different speed because they've decelerated a slightly different amount. They've decelerated hard and late versus early and over a longer space. And it's that stuff for me, which is really interesting with how that then links into the performance side of things rather than kind of deliberately slowing something down as a, as a coach. Uh, now let me ask about deceleration. I've been thinking about this a lot. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but, um, I see a lot of people training deceleration kind of in a vacuum as in, let's say we're doing lateral shuffles or something and they'll have them decelerate. You know, they're going, let's say we're going left to right. They'll have them decelerate as soon as they get to a cone, let's say heading right. And then they'll stop the drill and restart without like re-accelerating back to the left. For whatever reason, this kind of bugs me only because I'm like, okay, so deceleration, I want it to be followed by some sort of re-accelerative measure in the direction I want to go. I feel like we're like missing half the battle there with that. Um, maybe, maybe I'm overthinking it and it is a good thing because we want to train that deceleration, but I feel like we don't put some re-acceleration on top of it. That just seems problematic. Yeah, it's, um, this is again where I'd split up about what's your desired outcome. That what you're describing, I would say is fine if your desired outcome is a physical stimulus is a physiological stimulus. If you're just trying to expose them to some high velocity, eccentric muscle actions, then happy days, sprint. And when you get to that line, try and stop as fast as you possibly can. All right, you'll get that physical stimulus. But if your desired outcome is um, teaching the positions of deceleration, some of the more coordination components of it, and actually more skill development, then you're absolutely right. You need to have a really clear outcome to it. Because if there's not an outcome, they don't know whether they've done it well. And you kind of, I, I, one of my bugbears is, uh, not bugbears, but it's something that I see that I think is a really simple change is in a deceleration-based session, if you just ask somebody to sprint and stop on a line, in my experience, you never get full intent. When they do stop on the line, they stop in this really ambiguous kind of useless position. They kind of half stand up. They're not really sure, like, am I done? Um, and actually, if you my real simple rule for training deceleration and this is from a skill acquisition perspective not necessarily from a physiological stimulus perspective is get them up to a really fast speed up to a high speed lots of distance maximal acceleration and then give them something to do which requires them to change their speed to a lower speed whether that's a complete zero or whether that's just a a lower running velocity so for example instead of stop on a line it becomes um maximal acceleration once you if you know reactive pre-planned just park that for a minute and it's get to that line right foot plant back pedal or even not that just get to that line touch the line back pedal five meters or once you get to that line it's a a 505 style drill where they're gonna decelerate rotate turn and re-accelerate even get to that line pick up this tennis ball and throw this tennis ball that things like that, that you're just giving them something to do, which they can't do if they are running maximally. And that's, again, the other kind of example of they've got a really clear outcome. So it's better from a skill acquisition perspective. And obviously, you make it more specific to get more transfer. But then you've also got the element that the athlete is a bit more engaged and it's a little bit less prescriptive of just stop on that line it's like no here's a task to do and try and complete this task and that way if they fall over or if when they re-accelerate they're slow because they've got their feet in the wrong place 
they get this immediate feedback of I didn't do my deceleration or my entry or my, you know, my preparation period very effectively. Therefore, I need to do it slightly differently the next time I, I try it. Whereas if it's just stop on a line, they don't learn much. I don't think you get full intent. It looks a little bit wishy-washy. It's really boring, especially for the athlete. And uh, yeah, I would agree there's, there's, there's certainly opportunity left on the table if that's the, the only way that it's being, it's being done. But it is important about outcome, you know, physical yeah. versus, versus skill. Yeah, and I, I like that too. I mean, just kind of almost making it a little bit more, uh, like, what would that be? Hindbrain instead of forebrain. I mean, if you're following it up with a athletic task afterwards or a change of direction, you're going to see naturally what they're going to go to as opposed to this, like, we gave you the instruction to stop on the line. It didn't look how I wanted it to, so it's not right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the other part of the skill component with that is, the, the shapes that you're looking for in deceleration depends on why they're decelerating. Exactly. So if you yeah. decelerate to turn <laughs> yeah. or you decelerate to jump or you decelerate to cut, that changes what the deceleration looks like. Again, there's broad principles which stay continuous, but what are you trying to get them or how are you trying? No, it is a what. What are you trying to get them good at decelerating for? It's if the task changes, just because you can decelerate linearly, decelerate into a back pedal, is that the same as decelerating and turning 90 degrees and then re-accelerating in the original style or, you know, back to where you came from? Mm, I, I don't have the data to say it's not, but I would, I would tell you that the, the transfer isn't as direct as what it is if it's linear to linear. Um, what, about, what about coiling? Um, the, the concept of coiling or bracing within the trunk in a change of direction movement. I imagine, at least for me, I'm operating kind of on a continuum. Like I don't need to see someone's center of mass just go way to the right as we're trying to get back to the left. Um, but at the same time, like I don't want it so rigid that we're powerlifting. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on, on that as well. Yeah, look, look, really good question. Um, trunk control for me is a, is a big pillar, meaning if I'm going to get, if, if, if there's two things that I'm going to ask, tell someone from as a, as a coach to focus on from a cutting perspective it's lower limb alignment foot knee hip um and obviously some con considering the pelvis sometimes it's a bit hard for kind of younger coaches to focus what the pelvis does but anyway it's it, lower limb alignment and then what does the trunk do and the reasons for that is that the position of the trunk in relation to the stance leg is such a big influence on injury risk that an athlete really needs to have control over it. So one of the big you know, risk factors is if somebody is sprinting, they plant their right foot in order to try and cut left, the more the trunk leans over the top of the right foot, meaning you get a straight line from the foot up to the hip, but then you get this big angle where the trunk is leaning over the top of the stance leg. The more that happens, the more we get the, the, the negative loading that we don't want on the knee, knee abduction moments, and then that is massively increasing our, our injury risk. So what you want to see is you want to see somebody plant and you want to see when their foot plants, they are, the, the, the ground reaction force has an impact on their trunk position, meaning they don't push in the ground, their hips shift to the side, but then the shoulders are still left in the original direction. They're actually, their feet are moving their sternum and up essentially um it, it does become and you're right like is there you can get like you know lows of rigidity and there has to be a a, re, a relaxed fluid motion to i think all of this i i describe it as almost not the trunk being 
really stiff or really rigid, um, depending on the definition of stiffness. We need a muscular stiffness to kind of stabilize everything. But it's not that you want the trunk bolt upright and you don't want it to flex forwards or tilt left, tilt right, but there needs to be control over all of those movements. So that relates to deceleration quite a lot where in a cutting motion, someone's running at a really fast speed, they plant their foot, they have to decelerate a little bit within that foot plant. And if they plant their foot really hard, but they're still moving super fast, the trunk is essentially gonna just rotate over the top of the foot. So a bit like you think you watch javelin, somebody runs up to a line, they plant their front foot, and what happens is in order to move the javelin really quickly, foot sticks and then the trunk falls over the top of it. So in a change of direction motion, if the foot is gonna plant, we need to make sure that the force we're putting into the ground ideally has a positive effect on the trunk, or at least doesn't have a massive negative effect on, on that trunk position. So that's where I would, I would look at what it does. When the foot plants, does that end up with lots of hip flexion? Does it end up with almost a lateral flexion over the stance leg? Or when the foot plants, does that actually have a positive impact on the direction the trunk is facing and whether there's control over, over, its, over its position? And the main thing that they've got control over it, because um, that will really one help performance but also really reduce that amount of um the injury risks that we're gonna we're gonna associate with a lot of those movements so a, a lot of this sounds almost like obviously we can we can slow things down on on video and, and see this but a lot of it's kind of going to be dictated by our subjective eye for it almost because it's we're, we're taking so many things here we're taking potential for injury risk which might be a little more objective in what we're looking at but then athlete strategy the constraints what's going on like all of that so that's it really boils down to something that it's almost difficult to correct at times, unless it's like extremely glaring, huh? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's a tough one, which adds to the complexity of it, right? Which, which again, makes people like, what, what do I do with all of this? Because it, it, each athlete will look slightly different. Some people are quite knee or hip or ankle dominant with the way they kind of produce those movements. And then you've got, oh, but you know, just because an athlete has done it in a certain way in that task, if you change the task, increase the speed or decrease the approach distance or increase the angle, doesn't always mean that you'll see the exact same thing. And then you add, oh, but there's a, defend there's a defender there when you watch it on film and there's not a defender there in the next situation when you watch it <laughs> yeah. on film. You end up with it becomes really difficult. My, my recommendations there is watch and watch lots and don't make knee-jerk reactions to single single events and look for like trends look for the, just the ways that people do it and that's both in the position when they actually do the change of direction in terms of you know how do they control their trunk what's their lower leg alignment like how do they use their kind of hip and their posterior chain but also ah they keep going into this situation when they don't they don't decelerate they almost have this little jump cut, you know, forgive me for a, for a definition. They have this little, <laughs> this little mini kind of like square their hips, both feet go into flight. And then this, you know, um, this really large angular change, but they don't decelerate before that. Or you get an athlete and they never want to decelerate and they just try and maintain their speed, almost taking the longest, the longest route they possibly can to solve something because they're just rapid. And yet watch lots high speed, low speed, and then pick up your big rocks. Cause I think it's easy to overanalyze it with, oh, a little bit too much internal rotation at the foot there. And 
you know, oh, I'd, I really would have liked to have seen this happen, but unless you see that, the athlete's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> if you're going to change it, it's going to be really hard. Um, and even if you change it in your training session, or you change it when you tell the athlete to do it differently, and they do it differently, doesn't mean that when you then send them out onto the pitch that it has any one any positive impact or two transfers at all. Yeah. So yeah, just open open minded key principles look for big red flags and watch the athletes move lots to get an idea of right this is what i think i'm faced with with you you've got speed you don't have deceleration you like to complete these kind of large cuts by doing a you know this certain strategy of um you know this little kind of jump into it you always try and cut off your right leg blah de, blah de, blah and then you end up with this kind of profile of the best way that i think i deal with this is to let's focus here. This is where I think your limiting factors are and you prioritize your time that way. It's not love easy. It. No, no, not at all. I love it though. Um, very quickly, last question. I know we're running out of time, but I could touch on it very quickly. You mentioned the pelvis. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the center of mass coming in, coming into and out of cuts, I would imagine, at least for me, I've thought of it like I'd like to see people be able to uh, descend the pelvis to some extent in order to make these changes of direction happen. Um, I was just curious if you see people that cannot physically do it from a, like a biomechanical perspective, like are they unable to do it and what you might do to intervene to, to help them achieve positions that they might not naturally be able to achieve. When you say descend the pelvis, do you mean like a lateral tilt? Uh, or just a drop. I mean, just, Let's just, just like lower, lowering, lowering the center of mass. Yeah, sorry, okay, I was poorly cool. worded. <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay, cool. cool. Yeah. The reason I say that is because a lateral tilt of the pelvis is a really contemporary topic in cutting at the moment. But uh, anyway, so yeah, lowering, that's another thing, which is a big key pillar. Trunk control, lower the center of mass. Because if you lower your center of mass, what the, the main reason why in all of our multi-directional movements you want a lower center of mass is because you can't push left, right, behind you, in front of you, if you're stood up with your legs completely straight and your center of mass is really If you're high. already in extension, right, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the only way you can get your foot to hit the floor outside of your um, you know, immediate location underneath your hips is if your center of mass is closer, because you can't make your legs longer. So lowering your center of mass is a really, really important part of it. The biggest reason, it's not so much about necessarily a a verbal coaching of that, you can kind of encourage it, but I would say that that's one of them things which people avoid if they don't have the physical attributes to be able to do it. In order to lower your center of mass, you need to have really good levels of strength development. If you're doing it while, so in a deceleration, you're doing it from high speed, that's primarily eccentric strength, and then you know quad strength because of the direction that the, um, the ground is moving underneath you. If you don't have that physical capability then you'll avoid it and if you avoid it you might end up with lots of hip flexion which then negatively impacts the trunk control so lowering your center of mass but lowering your center of mass by the hip the ankle and the knee all flexing is really really important and I, that is one of the things which i think is a little bit more physically dominant give people the physicality the lower limb strength the, the mid um you know mid flexion mid knee angle um, force output so that they can comfortably lower their center of mass without their force output being the limiting factor. If you've, if you've got somebody and you give them though that strength capability 
And you've then just got to think about there's probably still a bridge to help that transfer. So you still need to expose them to tasks and encourage them to lower their center of mass. Again, not necessarily by saying lower your center of mass. That's one way it might work absolutely fine. But just like the deceleration, give them a task which requires their center of mass to be lower. And if they don't do it, give them another task which, inquire, which requires the center of mass to be even lower again. And, you, and you'll, you'll finally kind of force them to have to, to have to use it. But yeah, that's another really big one. But that, that's a, a strength development barrier in a lot of cases, um, which is why people avoid lowering center of mass, they avoid knee flexion, and then they end up with all sorts of, all sorts of issues. Yeah, that's very interesting. There's uh, honestly, I wish we had more time because that opens up so many more questions. Damn it! Um, <laughs> unfortunately, though, I yeah, I, unfortunately, time is time is short. So, um, Rich, please, whatever you want to promote, website, uh, any projects, anything like that, please have at it, man. Yeah, I, I, I don't sell anything. Um, look, look, come and you know, come and have a chat to me on Twitter. I like talking about this stuff. I don't claim to have all of the answers because there's, there's, you just, you can't answer all the questions in this area with, yeah. <laughs> with one question. Yeah, absolutely. Even when you think you've worked something out, you then find something else out, which starts making you question it. Um, but yeah, look, come and come and say hi on Twitter. Like, I, I, I enjoy the interaction. Um, check out the website. The website is athleteagilitylab.com. Um, and like, I'm slowly trying to write a little bit more comprehensively from blogs instead of peer-reviewed articles and <laughs> trying to have some stuff which is a little bit more kind of coach friendly because yeah it's an area which there's not great resources out there it's really hard to understand and you know we, we kind of need a bit of a um a, a collegiate effort all together to try and work out what is what is right and what is you know or, or, or how we at least move forwards with that as a that as a situation so yeah up, up on Twitter and come check out the website. I've got an email list on the website that will um, kind of get you post updates and a few other, a few other kind of um, interesting things that come along, but that's it really. Awesome. Um, good, good, good luck trying to solve these problems. <laughs> no, Rich, thank you, man. This is awesome. I've actually really enjoyed the few articles you have posted on the website. Can't wait for more. Um, yeah, definitely. This has been a great conversation. I might have to hit, like I said, I might have to email you a couple other questions I had because uh, no, this was extremely yeah, free, man extremely helpful for me. So I, I really appreciate that. No issues. All's good. Hey, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Cheers, man. Speak to you soon.